Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. I have been really looking forward to today's conversation with the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League's Jonathan Greenblatt. But first, let me thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening. And we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media. And we'll read some feedback next time. And if you'd like the podcast, please follow or subscribe. And you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. All right, let me tell you a little bit about Jonathan Greenblatt. Since 2015, he has served as the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, more commonly known as the ADL, and is its sixth national director. He leads all aspects of the world's leading anti-hate organization, whose mission since its founding in 1913 is to fight the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. In 2022, Jonathan released It Could Happen Here, a book that sounds an alarm, warning that hate and systemic violence is gathering momentum in the United States and that violence on a more catastrophic scale could be just around the corner. Jonathan, welcome into the back room. Thank you for having me. It's a real honor to have you here. I really appreciate the work you do. In fact, since October 7th, uh, on more than one occasion, when I've seen you on TV, it's literally moved me to tears. This is a very difficult time. We Jews are living in this country and in the world. Are you shocked by what you've seen in the last four weeks or so following the October 7th attack in terms of this rabid, venomous rise in anti-Semitism? Not just overseas, but even more so in this country, on college campuses, out in the streets. Yeah, Andy, I think I've been at this job for over eight years. I have seen a lot. I have never seen a moment like this. I mean, we know that anti-Semitism has been normalized in recent years. It started happening really on the 2016 campaign. And maybe even in 2015, in the response to the Iran deal, many in the Jewish community opposed it. And uh, the pro-deal crowd called Jews warmongers. Either you're for the deal, they said you're for peace. And the term warmonger was used repeatedly, even though I don't, I wasn't for the deal. I don't think I'm a warmonger. Um, and then in 2016, when candidate Trump ran for office, things like the great replacement theory, Individuals like Steve Bannon and others started to distort the conversation dramatically. And they would attack George Soros incessantly. And they created the conditions in which people felt emboldened to do things like Charlottesville. Attacks like Pittsburgh, like Poway. Really, in some ways, it culminated in the ransacking of the Capitol, that, that attack, that staged coup. So we've watched that with great pause. And I think we've seen the, it, the numbers go up and up and up. At the same time, we've seen sort of an anti-Semitism of no ideology. The issues in places like Brooklyn have gotten more and more intense. But the anti-Semitism of what I'll characterize as the political left, um, which I've likened previously to climate change, whereas the anti-Semitism from the extreme right, Andy, is like a Category 5 hurricane that comes in and blows apart your house and you can see it on the weather map and it's coming and you know it and you can choose to leave or you can choose to stay. It will still hit your house and we kill everyone inside. The anti-Semitism from the hard left was more like climate change, Andy. It starts and it's not noticeable. And the temperature slightly rises 
and some people notice it and they deny it. And some people notice it and they dismiss it. And then they notice it as a, we can just adapt to it. And then they notice it as well, we can mitigate it. And suddenly the anti-Semitism is so high. The temperature has increased so much that the kind of category five storms can come. But unlike the extreme right, where it's predictable on the left, the hard left, not very predictable. What's predictable is that the changing temperature will imperil everyone. What's unpredictable is what those storms would look like. And so in this moment, what I would not have guessed is that we would literally have pro Hamas rallies on college campuses across America. What I would not have guessed is we would literally have people like Congresswoman Tlaib keeping a tweet at the top of her feed, saying something that she knows is not true, that's been disproven by experts. Uh, and yet that blood libel is still there. That we would have people literally in public life defending eliminationist phrases like from the river to the sea. I mean, from the river to the sea, Andy, is like Germany for Germans. Mm -hmm. From the river to the sea is heard by Jews the way manifest destiny is heard by indigenous Americans. I mean, so I say this because I would not have guessed that the anti-Semitism, which we were watching, the normalization of it, that it would explode in this way with such violence and in with such velocity. And at the end of the day, what's difficult, I think, for the American Jewish community and for Jews worldwide, it's not just in America, is while we're still grieving, while we're still, while we are still mourning, while we're still praying for the hostages, the hundreds of hostages taken and held by who knows who and who knows where in these tunnels under Gaza, many of us feel like we are being held hostage by uh, partisans who knowingly gaslight us, who deny what we're experiencing, who dismiss our concerns. And that's, that's pretty frightening. And so this is a really interesting and fascinating aspect to this whole situation, because when you talk about the left in this country in particular, usually you're talking about academics, intellectuals, progressives, Jews, people who are at a certain stature in life where they're supposed to look at things through a prism of realism and practicality and pragmatism, compassion, empathy, balance, etc. And so I've always found it kind of shocking that it, there is this situation that we have in this country with anti-Semitism coming from the left. How do you explain that? What is at the root of that? Well, I think it's complicated. And I say this as someone who worked for Barack Obama. Like, no one would accuse me, you know, of being like a MAGA enthusiast over here, right? But I think to many people who define themselves as centrist, let alone liberal, let alone progressive, it is hard to reconcile that those sentiments, the liberal sentiments, with the illiberalism coming from the hard left. Uh, trying to overtake the party. And I think this is a, you recall maybe 20 years ago, the right had a Tea Party moment when a set of insurgents who were small at the time, small numbers, came in and started very much changing the dialogue. And now it's been completely overtaken. Donald Trump is exhibit A. Like, I think 
we now have a Tea Party moment for the left. And whereas, again, the vast majority of Democrats, they, 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 you know, they understand Israel, they understand the issues, they retain the classic liberalism that has characterized the Democratic Party for a long time. There is a set of insurgents who are promoting a very illiberal agenda. So how and why does that happen? I mean, I think, number one, there has been, you know, an obsession with a kind of oppression Olympics, you know, with a way, instead of seeing the world as a pie that can grow, instead of having a mentality of abundance, there's been a mentality of scarcity and a psychology of a, a zero sum game. And in a zero sum game, this victimology has settled in where it's either you're on top or on bottom. And in order to get on top, you have to put somebody else on the bottom. And so this is a very un-American idea we're a country that's always had the American dream, always been about expanding, always been about abundance. Now we seem to be about contracting. And I don't think that's a very comfortable place for many of us. And I think Jews who historically, long before America, were, you know, derided in Europe, in the Middle East, and other cultures as a minority, because we we, we pray differently, we, we, we worship differently, we, we lived apart because we were forced to. Uh, we had different customs and dietary practices, even different language. Uh, many of those same tropes and those patterns have now settled in here. And so Jews have become the convenient scapegoat for many on the left when the oppression Olympics are looking for someone to blame for all their troubles. And Jews who often appear white, or certainly not all white, but often appear white, Jews who sometimes can have privilege, not always, but certainly sometimes, uh, Jews who have succeeded well beyond what like my grandparents ever would have guessed because they came here penniless as refugees. Uh, my grandfather was a Holocaust survivor, actually, a paternal grandfather. I, I just think they would not recognize the moment we're in today. But unfortunately, it feels like we're in a world, Andy, where intemperate voices have the most sweat, where radicalism seems to rule the day. And I think the reason is because our leaders have failed to lead. And as victimology settled in, the university presidents and the cultural leaders didn't push back. They said, okay. And they created the conditions in which this sort of illiberalism has now really, really infiltrated so many different aspects of our life. And I say that again, as someone who thinks of myself as a classic liberal who upended my life in California to go work for President Obama, who deeply believes in justice and fair treatment to all, who deeply believes not just in fighting anti-Semitism, and anti-black racism and anti-Asian, you know, hate and anti-LGBTQ bias. And my track record speaks for that. But that same track record, the same kind of kind of moral consistency that I have tried to apply in this role to all the other communities has me now defending the Jewish community in ways I just wouldn't have guessed was necessary just a few years ago. I'm going to answer my own question in a very simplistic way, which I'm sure you're going to appreciate because I'm going to refer to that book behind you called It Could Happen Here. I kind of look at it in people in this country, in particular Jews perhaps, fall into one of two buckets. The it could happen here bucket, and there's no way it could happen here bucket. And it kind of just very cleanly divides us because I think if you really walk around thinking, oh, it could happen here, that changes your perspective on an awful lot of things. If you don't think it can happen here, and that harkens back to a lot of Jews in the pre-Holocaust years, you know, who thought 
wow, we're living in this great democracy of Germany, and okay, Hitler, blah, blah, blah. But we are appreciated. We contribute to the society. We're academics. We're... No, we saw what happened in Nazi Germany. The only difference, I think, here is that we're in a strong economy. Imagine, imagine if we had 20 25% unemployment or more. Imagine if we had 20% inflation. Imagine if people were really destitute and someone like Trump came along. It gets to your book, which is it could happen here. And to think it can happen here, I think is just incredibly naive. Yeah, I mean, when I wrote this book, people thought I was hyperbolic or exaggerating. Not so much. Um, the truth is, is that, Amer look, I am long on America. I think this is the greatest democracy in the history of modernity. I think it has been amazing, not just for the Jewish community, and it's been, you know, put Israel aside, it has been the best home for Jews and diaspora of any. Uh, and I also think that it's been the best refuge for so many, uh, for the tired and huddled masses, right? As Emma, Laz Emma Lazarus put it, from all walks of life, from all colors and creeds and faiths and corners of the world. And yet, democracy is not a foregone conclusion. There's no natural law that ordains that this will last. These are not like the gravitational pull of the, you know, the lunar cycle or something. The truth is, is that democracy, and I also will just say, speaking of cycles, like, you know, my background's in economics. I don't believe in economic cycles, Andy. They're actually not true. Economic cycles are the product of people. They are the result of decisions we make or don't make. They don't just happen. Again, like the tidal pull. This is critical because democracy also, the cycles that we, that we think about, I don't believe in that. They are the result of what people do. And we will lose this democracy. And these protections can slip away if we don't fight for what we have. And so what I have learned through my work at ADL, what I have learned through the research that I've done, what I've learned through my own personal experience, and I think many Jewish people know this, is that this can all go away like that if we don't hold on. And what I'm seeing today on college campuses where Jewish people are being told to hide in their rooms, mm -hmm. hide in their dorms. What I'm being told, where Jewish people are being told not to wear, you know, stars of David around their neck, or Jews are self-selecting and taking the mezuzahs off their doors. I, if you don't think that is a very perilous sign, and when I say it's a perilous sign, Obviously, it's a perilous sign for Jews. But boy, if you don't think that's a bad sign for everybody, you just don't get it. I mean, because as it goes for the Jews, so it will go for America. If the Jews aren't safe here, no one is safe. If we are not allowed to participate fully in this, in this experiment we call democracy, the experiment is over. And I, I understand and appreciate that to someone who is not Jewish or to someone who's not a student of history or someone who hasn't been paying attention, that may feel like some overstatement. Trust me, it is not. Well, we just this week marked the anniversary of Kristallnacht. And 
it just seems like history is lost on people. There's no connective tissue between that event in Nazi Germany and Jewish kids having to hide in dormitories. And then you look at what happened at the airport in Russia. All, there's so many examples. But you brought up something which I think is really interesting. You created connective tissue between the it could happen here scenario and politics in general. Because we as a nation have come very close to seeing our democracy eliminated. But if Trump gets elected again, and you have people like Stephen Miller and others who support all these crazy extremist views, then it becomes much more likely that it could happen here. So it's not just harmful for Jews if Trump is president. It's harmful for our very democracy and everybody in it. A hundred percent. Like, if you don't think it is, you're just not paying attention. I worry deeply about these waves that continue to hit you know, the, this fragile structure that we call our democracy. And again, it may be that the Jews at the front row seat, but everyone will drown if these waves break into the, you know, come into the building, everyone will drown. So, but I'll tell you, you know, in this moment today, and I think about the anniversary of Kristallnacht, like 70, there was a poll that came out yesterday by Benenson and strategy group, 75% of Jews, 75% of Jewish Americans uh, say that anti-Semitism in their local communities has increased. A third of the respondents said they knew of physical acts of violence or acts of hate against Jews. A third knew of them. And we've all seen the stories or read the stories and seen the videos of the man getting bludgeoned and kicked to death in, in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm or the University of Massachusetts student getting stabbed, or the woman driving her car into what she thought was a synagogue to ram and kill people in uh, Indiana, or the Jordanian national in Texas was plotting to kill Jews. And these images from the college campuses are, are almost, I mean, they almost can't be believed. You know, the images of students barricaded in a library at the Cooper Union while a mob banged on the windows and chanted, you know, globalize the intifada. You know, students, yes, you know, this week at UCLA, banging a pinata with the image of a Jewish leader on it, mask and trying to kill the pinata. I mean, I used to teach at UCLA. My wife is a graduate of UCLA. I love UCLA. I don't recognize a campus where that happens. And the president or the chancellor, in that case himself, doesn't race to the scene and say, stop. Like you brutalize images of Jews in an environment where anti-Semitism is, we've seen a 388% increase in the last month. Almost 400% of acts of harassment and vandalism and violence. And then college students are violently attacking an image of a Jewish person and the chancellor doesn't intervene and no one says anything. Like, who thinks this is normal? This is an environment where someone is going to get killed. And I don't say that lightly. I don't say that, you know, without consideration. But when you demonize people, when you dehumanize them, when you use wild, violent rhetoric, and when you, when you sort of like, 
role play, uh, wild, violent actions. The odds of something wild and violent happening are somewhere between probably 90 and 100%. And again, to your question, we saw this happen in the Trump years. We saw wild, violent rhetoric espoused and then wild, violent kind of cosplay online. And then guess what? Wild violence happened in places like Buffalo, in places like El Paso, in places like Pittsburgh, um, and on and on. So I don't know why anyone would be surprised in this moment. And if we don't get our arms around this, Andy, like the potential for large-scale violence is incredibly high. I'm not talking about mm -hmm. in Gaza City. I'm talking about in a New York City right here at home. And so you mentioned the, the meteoric rise in just the last month of anti-Semitism and violent anti-Semitism. And then there's a c cause and effect, obviously, which is the October 7th attack in Israel. But th therein lies the rub for me. It's like Israel and Jews throughout the world had about 24 hours of this honeymoon empathy situation. Okay. And then it decided, okay, we have to retaliate. And that's when the proverbial shit hit the fan worldwide. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like the expectation was when you're a victim, we can sympathize with you guys a little bit, but we don't want mm -hmm. you, we don't want you responding. So talk mm -hmm. to the people who say the response is disproportionate, the response is out of control, the response is oppressive, and that's the cause of the spike in anti-Semitism this last month. I mean, I, look, I, I, so I think as, my, as someone who fought back when we were making wild, when the president of the United States and his sort of partisans were making wild claims about China in COVID-19. And now look, that whole story, the origin story, it is fair to ask hard questions about what was Beijing's approach. They're making wild claims about it at a time when Asian Americans were experiencing hate and not doing anything to diminish it and holding all Chinese people collectively responsible was wrong. The same way, like when Claims were made in the Trump years that all Mexicans come across the border were rapists and murderers. They were all responsible for the acts of few. That was wrong. And holding Jews today collectively responsible for what's happening in Israel. And by the way, we can talk about what Israel's doing. Let, let's do that. Let's put that aside for a second. But holding a group of people collectively responsible for what's happening on the other side of the planet is completely and entirely wrong. And it is indefensible. It is bigotry 101. You can't say what, I mean, if you would have said it is wrong after the death of Khashoggi to go protest in front of mosques, which it would have been, just to be clear, then it is wrong and to hold all Muslims responsible, then it is wrong to protest in front of synagogues or Jewish Hillels or other Jewish buildings against what you think the Israeli government is doing in Gaza. It's wrong. Now, that being said, look, Hamas has said explicitly, repeatedly, that what happened on October the 7th was a glorious day. Their spokesperson said on Al Jazeera last week that they will do October the 7th. These are his words, not mine. Again, there will be another October 7th and another October 7th and another October 7th. These are his words. I mean, to all these people calling for a ceasefire, which I understand every Palestinian innocent who is killed, that is a tragedy. In the Jewish faith, we believe that 
saving a life is saving an entire world and destroying a life is destroying an entire world. So I'm not going to minimize or soft pedal the casualty count. It's terrifying. And yet, and I'm also not going to discount uh, the suffering of the people in Gaza. You know, many say that Gaza is like an open air prison. I believe Gaza is an open air prison, Andy. And the warden is Hamas. Mm -hmm. The warden is Hamas. Hamas is not just a hate group, although they are. They're not just a foreign terror organization, although they are. They're not just a criminal, you know, outfit that steals from people, though they are. Hamas is also the government in Gaza. And so when they say they're going to continue these, 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 you know, massacres, when they say they're committed to destroy their neighbor, I don't know what anyone would have Israel do. How do you have a ceasefire with the organization that says we are committed to murder Jews? I don't think the Jewish state has a whole lot of, you know, leeway there. Yes, they need to spare, to do as much as they can to spare innocent lives. Yes, they need to do as much as they can to minimize civilian casualties. And yes, they must do everything they can to destroy this organization that said they're committed to destroy them. So, you know, I think, again, I, I, I am not a geo-military strategist. I don't pretend to understand how best to get it done. I want the Israeli military to continue their efforts to minimize civilian casualties. And I want the Israeli military, military to have the freedom of maneuver to end this mortal threat to Jewish people in Gaza and worldwide. Mm -hmm. um, look, when the Nazis said they were going to destroy America, we did everything in our power to take them out. And I think this is when Al-Qaeda said they can do everything in their power to kill more Americans. We did everything in our power to take them out. And when Hamas says they're committed to killing Jews, I think the Jewish state needs to do everything in its power to take them out, period. Right. End of story. And But blaming Jewish people here, blaming, you know, vandalizing synagogues and 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 vandalizing Zionist businesses, which is not really a thing, but whatever, um, and harassing people because they're visibly Jewish is is cowardly and disgusting and indefensible by any measure. Yeah, and the difference is that it's it is different when it's Jews. The bar is either higher or lower, however you want to analyze it. But it, it, there just this, seems like there's this expectation that Jews don't have the same, Israelis don't have the same ability, the same right to defend itself when attacked the way it was attacked. In our final couple of minutes, I want to ask you that, you know, without having a, a crystal ball, it's clear that we're able to make a prediction that things on the ground are certainly going to get a lot worse, most likely uh, in terms of Israel's attempt to eradicate Hamas, which mm -hmm. means that the anti-Semitism and the rhetoric we're seeing is also likely going to increase. What's the ADL's plan to combat that, especially here at home? I mean, I recognize that in some ways, you know, what we certainly can't do is stop the fighting or impact the conflict over there, but we can do over here is try to call out hate when it happens. Mm -hmm. So we're going to continue to be relentless in calling out the anti-Semitism, whether it masquerades as anti-Zionism, which is anti-Semitism, or whether it is just naked and unvarnished. We'll continue to speak out and push for like news organizations, as I continue to do every single day, to cover this with a degree of objectivity and to stop... Um, I mean, like referring to Hamas murderers as fighters is wrong. I mean, I said this yesterday to the leadership of the Washington Post, because in their reporting, they describe, I'm not talking about the op-ed page, 
just a different conversation. Talking about like in the news section, they describe the individuals who committed the massacres as quote fighters. Like in order to be a fighter, you need to fight. In order to fight, you need to be someone with whom you are fighting. Someone with a Kalashnikov who comes in and burns babies in their cribs, they are not fighting. They are murdering, true. They are slaughtering, true. They are killing, true, but they are not fighting. Like you are not militating, they call them militants. In order to be a militant, you need to be militating. You can't militate against, for example, an elderly Holocaust survivor who you choose to execute at gunpoint. You can't militate against the six-year-old boy whose fingers you're chopping off in front of his parents and his sister mm -hmm. after you chopped off the sister's foot. That's not militating. That's torturing. That's murdering. That's killing. So I said to the editorial staff, like, just report on, you can call them terrorists. That would encompass everything I just described. But either call them murderers or killers or torturers. Don't call them militants and fighters because that, that's not an accurate description. And in fact, what it is, it's your bias, Shelley. So just take the bias out of the reporting and use adjectivity. So I will continue to call that out because I think that conditions the conversation, Andy. Number one, I think number two, we'll continue to press, you know, university leadership, for example, to keep our Jewish students safe and help them understand their legal obligations under Title VI and the potential risk exposure they have if they don't do that. We'll also continue to make sure that student groups that support Hamas um, are called out for doing so. And by the way, when I say called out, I, although they should be called out for the indefensible moral position they're taking, but I'll also call them out because it is illegal to provide material support for a foreign terror organization. Freedom of expression is not the freedom to incite violence. Mm -hmm. And while universities can claim free speech, universities make decisions every single day about what classes they allow, about what, you know, what people they hire, about what students they admit, because these are not value-free zones. But for some reason, the only value-free issue is murdering Jews. Right. So we will call that out. I think thirdly, we'll continue to encourage companies and organizations to do the same. ADL created something called the Workplace Pledge to make it easy for companies to stand with their Jewish employees. We already have hundreds of companies like Google and Adidas and Accenture and KKR and you know, hundreds of others who've joined. Um, so I will try to make it easy. For a, and, and we'll also, I should also just say, we'll applaud the people who get it right. We'll lift them up because I think we should do less calling out and more calling in. Like we should do more ejecting people, the bad actors, but elevating the good ones. So we will lift up the people who get it right and we will put a laser beam on the people who get it wrong. And uh, look, I don't think history will judge those people very well. That's true. But right here and now, it's my job to protect the Jewish people, and I've got to focus on that every day. Well, it's critical work you're doing. It's very important. We appreciate it. And I thank you for coming on and helping us make some sense of this craziness. And hopefully you can come back and continue the conversation with us. I would so enjoy that, Andy. Thank you for having me. And I would welcome the opportunity to come back anytime you'll have me. Great. Thank you. Take care, Jonathan. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander. 
and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week. Thank you.